Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on a Wednesday morning, the 12th of October. Good morning to everyone around the world listening on Bloomberg Radio. I'm David Gura with Tom Keen in New York today. The Federal Reserve releases minutes from its September meeting. We'll look for more detail on that 7-3 to three decision not to raise rates. And we'll continue to keep a close eye on currencies this morning. The pound strengthening from what was close to a three-decade low. UK Prime Minister Theresa May signaling more of a willingness to work with Parliament on a plan for Brexit. As I mentioned, Fed minutes out today at 2 p.m. in Washington. And Stephen Stanley is going to be paying attention to that. He is Amherst Pierpont's chief economist, kind enough to join us now in the studio in New York. And Stephen, let me just start by asking what you're going to be looking for when those notes come out from the Eccles building this afternoon. What's the first thing you're going to be looking for? Good morning. Well, I think the first thing I'm going to be looking for is just how wide was the sentiment for a move? I mean, we know that three voters chose to dissent. Uh, but I think we also have a sense that there were others who wanted to move as well. So um, just how close were they? You know, Vice Chair Fisher said it was a pretty close call. So uh, I think how close was it and how does that set up for, for a move in December? I'm sure you've been paying attention to what Eric Rosengren of the Boston Fed uh, has been saying. Talk about the, the, the prominent role he's playing now uh, as someone here advocating for a rate rise sooner rather than later. Sure. Well, I think the, the main significance of that is he's someone that's traditionally been very dovish. Um, and the, the reasoning that he's using is one that I think resonates with more than a few of the people in the Fed, which is that he's concerned that a long stretch of very easy monetary policy is leading to excessive asset prices. And in particular, he's looking at commercial real estate and the effect that could have on the banking sector if, in fact, uh, prices get a little too inflated and then start to head the other way. Chair Yellen has had a, a great record of fostering and having unanimity uh, among the ranks at the FOMC, we're seeing that start to, to erode a little bit. How much of a concern do you think that is to her in terms of just management of that committee? Well, I mean, I, you know, she is more dovish, I think, than the consensus of the committee. So there's a tension there where she certainly wants to represent the committee and and to bring the committee along. But at the same time, I think she feels very strongly in pursuing an easier monetary policy. This just came across the screen, David Gura. Nate, Nate Langson the Royal Mail of the United Kingdom will not allow Samsung's Galaxy Note 7 smartphones to be returned to Samsung through its postal network. That is remarkable. Yeah, I read that Korean Air was not allowing them to be on their planes turned on, but uh, I guess you're wow. put it on a ship, right? I, I don't mean <laughs> I to interrupt Steve Stanley <laughs> from... Uh, do you, does Steve Stanley help us here? He do you have a, have a, have a Galaxy 7? 7, yeah. 7? I, I don't, and if I did, I think you'd have to evacuate me, right? Ken Fellio, do you have a Galaxy 7? We're hoping, we're hoping Colin of the Twins, he has a Galaxy 7. Oh, yeah. Damn, I, if, you, if you had a Galaxy 7, Colin, we're going to let you go home. <laughs> <laughs> so there it is. Seriously, folks, that's an important note on the challenges yes. that Samsung has. Steve Stanley, help me with the minutes. How do you read the minutes? I mean, I've seen them several, some, 
many, a few. How does a pro like you read Janet Yellen's minutes? Well, I think that those words that you mentioned are ones that you do have to pay attention to because they're often um, dueling perspectives. So you'll have a hawkish view and a dovish view, and you have to pay attention to how many, you know, what those words suggest about how many are in each camp. And I think what we've seen over most of this year is that the Hawks have been, um, you know, pushing for a move, and but they've always been in the minority. And it feels to me like the, uh, the balance of power on the committee, at least for the moment, has changed a little bit, and it's, it's, a, it's a somewhat more um, open uh, to a hike, uh, certainly before the end of the year. Do you always learn something new? I mean, I, I look at them, <laughs> I look at how people process them. It's looking at word count. It's looking for instances of, of, of certain words. How much new or novel do you get in the minutes each time? Well, I think it's it's not the same every time. Sometimes the minutes aren't really all that helpful, um, and then there are other times where there's a there's a paragraph about a conversation that you know a topic was discussed extensively that you may not have expected. Um, so I think there's the there's the little breadcrumbs that are dropped, you know, the explicit policy signals that are sent in the minutes. But I think there's also sometimes, uh, I, as an economist, I get an insight into things that they're looking at on a broader scale rather than just what's going to happen at the next meeting. And how about what the non-voting members say? How much credence do you give what they're saying at the meeting, what, what's recorded from them in the minutes? Well, you know, you, you look at this committee as it's currently constituted, and the board is, is very dovish in general. And it also, over the years, we've gotten to a point where the board basically, uh, governors just aren't going to dissent, right? So the, the chair basically has the votes to get whatever she wants done. There is this inner orbit and the outer order of the, order of the banks. Then. Right. Yeah. So then the non-voters, I think, uh, as a rule, are typically more hawkish than the norm or the, or the center of the committee because the center is so dovish. Mm. Um, so, again, it's a question of uh, are they frustrated because they know they're not going to get what they want? Uh, are they eager to move and, and, and feel like we're moving in the right direction and they just like, like to go a little more? Uh, or they just feel like they're just totally butting their heads up against a wall. Mm. And you do get a, a little bit of a sense of that sometimes in the minutes. I just did on the, the dots chart, folks. I may do this on television tomorrow, and I'll send it out on Bloomberg Radio Plus. A linear regression of the dots chart. Translated, we get to 2% Fed funds target in about February of 2018. That seems almost preposterous. Where do those dots migrate to? Well, I think the question really is about inflation going forward. We've had, a, we've had an economy where the labor market has improved a lot, but inflation is kind of stubbornly held below 2%. So uh, I, I think things change a little bit as we move into 2017 because I think we're going to start to see those inflation numbers get very close to 2% by the end of this year and probably move above it next year. So that would be the case for something like the dots. And as you okay. say, the market doesn't expect that at but, all. But do the market doesn't expect it, even though there is language from adults like Stan Fisher of an overshoot. So we get near 2%. That's a big so what to Chair Yellen, isn't it? I think so. I think they'd, they'd be very happy to see inflation a few ticks above 2%. The question is really... Um, it, it, that's not a problem if you're fairly close to a neutral policy. But if you're very far away from that... Um, and and you're and you're not moving closer uh, at a at a decent pace when inflation is already ab uh, above your target. Then I think I think it becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. There was a quote from Torsten Slock in a Bloomberg news piece this morning 
talking about the, the whites of their eyes when it comes to inflation, he begs the question, what, what does that mean in this day and age? Is it 1.7? Is it 2? How do you define the term whites of their eyes when it comes to, to inflation? Well, I think it's it's got to be two percent. I mean, the, the the Fed is, is is even now we've on the core PC deflator, which is their preferred sure. measure, of course. The, we've moved on a year over year basis from one three to one seven, and the year to date pace is very close to two percent. And yet, you know, you've got prominent people in the committee who are still talking about that it's a problem that inflation is too low. Why are they saying that if you and I see the same vectors higher? Vectors don't matter anymore. I, well, it's interesting. You know, Charlie Evans was out over the over the uh, long weekend, and his view is simply he's just skeptical. You know, we've spent so long below two percent. He's concerned about inflation expectations having moved down. I don't necessarily agree with him about that, but I, I think he's just skeptical that we're going to make it to two percent. So there's just disagreement about yeah. where we're headed. Very quickly here, one of the things I've noticed, David. I don't know if you've noticed this in Brooklyn, but the basic <laughs> idea is. All of a sudden, businesses are having trouble keeping people and retaining people. Our def- I looked at the Jolt survey, Michael McKee's favorite series. I'm sorry, I got a jolt out of it. Mm. It's it's above the last peak of like seven years ago, isn't it? It's yeah, absolutely. Tight. The labor market's getting tight. And does, I, does Mr. The, the brilliant Mr. Evans of Carnegie Mellon and Chicago, the land of the Chicago Cubs, does he know that? Well, I think again, that's where the the kind of the hawkish and the dovish predilections come in. I, I'm I tend to be more of a hawk. He's certainly very dovish, and I think where I see the glass half full, he sometimes sees the glass half empty. So he's looking at things like uh, low labor force participation, right. uh, elevated U six, and he's saying, "Hey, there's still some slack should, here." Michael Barr, should we have a drinking game that whenever a guest <laughs> comes in and says, "Glass half full, glass empty." We take a shot. We have something. to have one or the other. We don't shot, even have to say stomach. half full or half empty. We can just have the drinking. It's just amazing. Glass half. That was Steve. That was just outstanding. Yes. Next, we're going to do the Truman. One hand in this pocket, one hand in that pocket. Alanis Morissette did a great song of that. David Gurr and Tom Keen. We're here with Stephen Stanley of Amherst Pierpont to remind you he was brilliant on a more subdued GDP call than consensus a year and a half or so uh, ago. Let's expand. I love the phrase proxy productivity. It's something you and Bob Cinch talk about at Amherst Pierpont. Help us with productivity. And I love this idea of the demographic dynamics and proxy productivity. What is that? Well, you know, I think what we're seeing is obviously, and this is not just in the U.S., but all around the world, we're seeing low, very low productivity in this cycle. And so... Um, if you look at the implications that that has, it has really important implications for GDP, uh, potential GDP growth. As the San Francisco Fed put out a piece yesterday saying that potential GDP growth may be one and a half to mm-hmm. one and three quarters. I think that's really important. It's something that I've been talking about for a long time. I think the other piece of that that, that maybe people haven't caught on to quite yet is the implications for, of productivity for wage growth. Because people are right. still, even at the Fed, are still saying, well, we got to get back to 3% wage growth because that's right. what we had in the last cycle. Well, if productivity is slower, businesses are not going to pay workers for productivity that doesn't exist. And Be- so- beautifully framed. And the idea here, and this is so important, folks, is how things mesh in. If I get a stronger dollar, if we go to the top of the recent range, or if I even break through that, is that an implied austerity for Janet Yellen? And is that as something that diminishes growth and diminishes our ability to get productivity up? Does the dollar play into it, even if it's a little bit? 
Right. Well, I think where it, yes, it it definitely is a drag to growth, and it's also a a negative factor for inflation. And I think that was the bigger issue for the Fed in that fourteen fifteen period when the dollar strengthened so much is that it ha- helped to hold down inflation at a time when they were hoping to get it up. Yeah, I'm gonna try to get you to be prescriptive here. <laughs> so okay. Yeah, you know, with this with this negative sentiment, with U.S. Uh, 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 wage growth, real wage growth slowing. Uh, and your forecast continuing to slow. What's going to kickstart that? What's going to change things, do you think? Well, I think on the wage side, we'll probably be okay because the labor market is tight, right? So if firms want to hire workers, they're going to have to pay more. And we're seeing more and more anecdotal evidence of that. And we've started to see some movement on the on the uh, wage statistics, average hourly earnings, ECI, whatnot. So I, I think that, that real wage growth will be okay as long as inflation is only gradually moving higher. Um, and, and as a result, I think the consumer should be in pretty good shape here for the foreseeable future as well. Why are demographics something more people aren't talking about? We talk about it in the context of Japan. We talk about it in the context of many other economies. But it isn't something that we talk about that much here in the U.S. Probably because it moves very slow, um, which is actually good for someone like myself who's trying to forecast things because demographics is one thing I can forecast pretty well. <laughs> uh, it's good for me because I'm never going to retire. <laughs> um, you heard it here. We, Steve yeah, Stanley, how do you respond to very good charts and evidence, and I think of the Zero Edge team that have been great on this, of part-time, full-time America? And I get it. In some job categories, there is wage growth, and there's a tightness of the labor market. But that doesn't speak to the part-timeization hmm. of the United States of America. Do you think that's just wrong analysis, or can you say there's two Americas and one of them is a part-time America? Well, I think there's no question that um, that we're going to see more part-time jobs, uh, and this is not a cyclical issue. This is a structural issue, and, I, and I've kind of argued against the view coming out of, of Chair Yellen and others at the Fed that a lot of the uh, – you know, that there's a lot of slack in the labor market as demonstrated by – uh, higher part-time involuntary part-timers or by the U6 unemployment rate, um, I think a lot of that is structural. And I think it reflects a couple of things. One is that the economy itself, the structure of the economy has changed. If you look at the sectors of the economy where we've seen job growth in this cycle, right. retail, restaurants, temp workers, a lot yeah. of places where and it's David, always And Zero Hedge just kills us after the jobs day. Zero Hedge does like four or five charts on this. I mean, come on. <laughs> they're not hamburger flippers, but they're not the jobs that give us an aspiration, do they? Yeah. Well, I, I will say, I think over the last year or two, we have seen a little more broad-based um, job growth, certainly early in the expansion. I yes. think that was the case. Um, but the but the point, my point would be, that you can't look at the U6 rate and say, oh, well, this is higher than it was in the, in the you know, 10 years ago and conclude from that that there's more cyclical slack. I think that's a structural change in our economy. Now, what about this new group of workers that uh, Alan Kruger at Princeton talks about, those who elect to do contract work or part-time work through Uber, through other uh, on-demand services like that? Yeah, the gig economy. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's great for folks who are looking for more flexibility. Um, you know, if it's the only thing you can find and you'd like to have a 40-hour-a-week full-time job, then obviously that's, that's an issue. Um, but I think for a lot of folks, they, they would like to be able to move in and out of, of, of employment at their leisure to work whatever hours they'd like to work. And so for folks like that, it's a, it's a great yeah, opportunity. I, 
I'm skeptical. Mm. To me, it's a lot of people forced into the gig. The, the, I, the, I hate the phrase, the gig economy. John Tucker, is that what we're doing? Are we part of the gig economy? You've always been part of the gig economy. <laughs> it's, it's just you're a great gig. <laughs> Steve and Sally, brilliant. Thank you so much for the Amherst. Yeah. Amherst Pierpont, go out there with Bob, send you gig through the <laughs> gig economy, the gig job economy of Amherst uh, Pierpont. This has been fabulous. Any uh, uh, delay, Craig Moffat joins us from Moffat Nathanson. Craig, I'm watching Bob Costas kill it on MLB on cable. And one day they had Spanish baseball on MLB channel. I couldn't find where the other games are because they're spread out all over. It, it just seems almost like sports chaos in your cable world. Where are we going to be in five years if I want to watch Red Sox-Cubs World Series? Well, hey, good morning, Tom. You know, look, there's a lot of talk about uh, exclusivity for sports and things like that. Um, and, and obviously there's been a lot of talk about key sports uh, leagues and games moving to online media my best guess, and um, and it, this is really more my partner Michael's bailiwick than mine, but our, our best guess is that um, you're going to see things stay the same more than they change. Um, that sports are so central to the value proposition of live yeah. television and the cable package. They represent only about 25% of viewers. I say only um, 25% is an enormous number, about 25% of viewing points. Um, but in key demos, you know, Fox just said last week, what was it, 55% of their viewership or something was live sports. And live sports are so central to the value proposition that, uh, that the, right. the traditional media companies are going to continue to pay up and keep them in the traditional venues for a while longer. The num- and- well, the number one question I get, Craig, and I want David Gurr to jump in here, is Apple TV's trying so hard. It ain't working, Mr. Moffat. I can tell you that from actual use. Does Apple TV have any chance to be part of live sports? Well, I, I guess the, the the obvious retort would be: Are they really trying that hard? Um, I mean, they're certainly trying hard to make Apple TV a compelling device, but they haven't really tried all that hard to make it a compelling service. You know, for all the the talk of of Steve Jobs um, having this deathbed revelation about how to crack the code for television. Mm-hmm. Um, not much has happened on the Apple front. Um, they spent a lot of time trying right. to create a, a, a video bundle that they thought would be compelling. And for all intents and purposes, right. they dropped the exercise, whether it was over <clears throat> the lack of broadcast television or whatever it was. Yeah. They don't seem to be pursuing yeah. it anymore. David, so you understand, Craig Moffat has single-handedly been trying to fix the lousy Apple remote control of Apple TV. <laughs> Mr. So Moffat has so failed tiny. so far. Mr. Gura, jump in. Yeah, Craig, you talk about the importance of live sports right now to these broadcasters, and, and I wonder how you react to what we've seen when it comes to professional football in particular. Over these last few weeks, viewership has been diminished, advertisers not getting the bang for their buck that they wanted. How much of a, a warning sign uh, is that about the importance of, of live sports? You know, it's a great question, David, and, and um, my partner Michael just yesterday published a report 
the conclusion of which was the jury's still out. Um, that it's been a funny start to the season for the NFL in in that you've had a combination of very high profile injuries. Um, those injuries in turn and suspensions, obviously, with Tom Brady, the loss of uh, to retirement of Peyton Manning, and that combination of things made it difficult for schedulers to put the best games on television because they didn't know which teams were actually going to be interesting. You know, it turned out that injuries really changed which teams were going to capture the imagination. And then add to that the the presidential debates that have come on one Sunday night and one Monday night um, that have taken huge ratings. And it's hard to say whether there's something really endemic going on here. Um, if, if this continues and we see for the balance of this season or certainly in the beginning of next season um, that ratings aren't coming back, then there really is a reason to panic um, because – Football is the linchpin. It's not just sports in general. It is football and one league. It's the NFL. And if the NFL does crack, it's a huge problem. But I think it's too early to say that it mm-hmm. really is. Let me ask you about Twitter's $10 million bet. I put down my Moffat Nathanson notes the other night. Pick up the phone. <laughs> there on Twitter uh, is an NFL game. Uh, this was characterized as an experiment. But I must say, clarity of the, the game, easy to watch. There is the conversation going on beneath it, take it or leave it. But uh, how successful has this been for Twitter? And um, is it more than an experiment? Is the experiment paying off? Is this something we're going to see more of? Well, it certainly isn't paying off financially, um, although it's, you can't really judge it based on a single game. But it was a Jets-Bills game. Um, the, the viewership was middling at best, I suppose. And you're right, while technologically it worked reasonably well, and I say worked reasonably well and that you had a good picture and what have you, it operated with a fairly significant delay, and the delay got longer and longer as the game continued, um, which created some jarring moments, right? I mean, at at the beginning of the game, you were about 40 seconds delayed, and so part of the point of the exercise was to run tweets alongside the game. The tweets were 40 seconds into the future versus what you were watching. And by the end of the game, they were two minutes and 40 seconds into the future. You you might be hearing tweets or seeing tweets about the the next possession by the other team while you're watching um, a a drive. So Mm -hmm. I would say it was a, a... Roughly a success, but um, but certainly not a resounding one. And they didn't come close to making money on it. You know, they they it, it was a tiny tiny pool of viewers compared to what you would need for advertising revenue. You've written a lot about the the transition from uh, wired to wireless. The the that we'll no longer use those terms in in the pretty near term. Here, we're going to be talking about the network, and we're not going to be making the distinction between the two of those things. That as big cable operators get into the to the wireless space. How far out are we from that happening, Craig? You know, we're not as far away as you might think. Um, if, if you think about where the world is going with 5G wireless, which is the next generation of wireless. For when the do we see that? Another upgrade. <laughs> yeah, that's right, another upgrade. The technology um, is going to start to appear at least in fixed applications, meaning you won't be able to use it on your handset, but you'll be able to use it for uh, wireless broadband for your home. Um, probably as early as 2018, 2019. Um, Horizon seems to be the most (laughs) aggressive in doing it. Uh, Yeah. Craig, Uh, I'm just trying to get my new iPhone 7 in the mail. You know, 2018, really. David, sorry. (laughs) Sorry to interrupt. No, look, it's... So here's here's what's going to happen, right? In order to support those 
new um, 5G networks, you have to push wires deeper and deeper and deeper into neighborhoods because the nature of the uh, of the new technologies is smaller and smaller cell sites that each of which serves fewer and fewer people in order to support higher and higher capacity. The problem is as you do that, you become more and more like a wired network and less and less like a wireless mm. network. You know, if the old adage is that any wireless network is 90% wires and 10% wireless. Well, in the future, wireless networks are going to be 95% wires and 5% wireless. And if you take it to its logical conclusion, um, the, the ultimately competitive advantage in the wireless network comes from the most wires. And who has the most wires? It's actually the wired operators. Today. It's the cable operators who are best positioned for next-generation wireless. Um, at the same time, when you think about how you connect to your cable network today, you don't connect with a wire. You connect with Wi-Fi, right? You're watching on your iPad. You're watching on your – or you're using your, your wireless device in your home, your, your iPhone. Um, so these distinctions mm-hmm. between networks are going to go yeah. away. You're not going to say in the future, do I want wireless from the same company as I want right. my, my TV from? You're just going to say, I have yeah. a network and I use it. Thrilled to have Craig Moffat with us, Moffat Nathanson. Craig, let me start in buy, hold, sell. Verizon is in a state of flux. Is a dividend solid? I think Verizon's dividend is very solid, but the the wireless business in general is going through a state of flux, and that's why you see Verizon um, trying new things, eh, trying to to uh, to change the business by buying First AOL and now buying Yahoo. They aren't big transactions for a company like Verizon, but they, they I think, point to the challenges of, of operating in a wireless business that's just not growing anymore. And their business, yeah. their, their dividend is a safe dividend. They, they have very good dividend coverage, um, but it's a tough business that they're in. I'm glad that you brought up that Yahoo deal. Uh, wondering, in light of what Verizon has said here, how it wants that $1 billion reduction on what it said it would pay uh, for Yahoo, if you think that deal is a done deal. Well, at first I would say Verizon hasn't formally confirmed um, that they're looking for that $1 billion reduction. That was reported, but Verizon has, has not commented formally on it. Um, that said, I, I, my sense is there's another issue here um, separate and apart from the, the emails, and that is that the FCC um, has, uh, has said that they are going to impose privacy restrictions on ISPs like Verizon and cable operators and what have you um, that are much stricter than the privacy restrictions that are used for companies like Google and, uh, and edge providers, as they're called. That difference is a really big difference, including the difference of opt-in versus opt-out. If Verizon is subject to those much stricter privacy rules that limit how it can use the information that it has for selling advertising, then the whole strategy of advertising um, on the ad inventory of of Yahoo um, is called into question as to can you really do what you wanted to do if the FCC effectively says Yahoo's not going to be worth as much to, uh, to a company that's an ISP as it would be to a company that's not. Thank you. Thank you for pointing out, too, that that was the, the New York Post that reported about that $1 billion reduction. We'll see uh, how Verizon responds to that. Let, let me ask you about uh, something I put to Tim Armstrong when I was out at the Allen Company conference a few months ago uh, in Idaho. 
So many of these companies getting into content now, investing large sums of money in creating their own content. Tom, kicking things off a few minutes ago, saying how difficult it is to find the ball game, given, given so much that's, that's out there. Do you worry about saturation, that there's too much content, that there are companies here coming late to the party, spending a lot of money, and, and maybe some of that's going to get lost? Well, look, there's, there's, I think the fragmentation and amount of new content is a problem for lots of reasons. Um, and, you know, one of the unique things about the content business in general is try to think of another business where you don't just compete with all the other content that's being created today. You compete with all the content that's ever been created in history. Mm. Um, and the that creates um, a real deflationary issue for for the industry. And at first it was a real positive. It, it meant that everybody could start mining their libraries and, and selling it to places like Netflix and what yeah. have you. But now suddenly that that temporal yeah. competition, I guess you would call it, right. is starting to be a real concern because it's it's hard for any piece of content to really break out today, um, at, certainly at anything like the levels we used yeah. to see. And you still get hits, but um, but a hit is now a couple of million right. viewers, not not tens of millions of viewers. Craig, quickly here, where is the best value in the land of Moffat or in the content land of Nathanson? <clears throat> I, I have said for many, many years, every time you hear the phrase content is king, go by distribution. Um, and I think we're still in one of those cycles where, where everybody loves the idea that there's going to be all these new distribution pathways, and therefore it will drive up the value of content. Um, I suspect that as it has been for the last 20 years, that the opposite is true. And Remember, all of these supposed new distribution pathways are not really distribution pathways. They're new aggregators. Um, and the aggregation layer isn't the core issue. Where the real value comes from is the physical layer of distribution, where there are really scarce assets. That's the mm -hmm. cable pipe, um, to some extent the wireless pipe, but there are just so many competitors in yeah, wireless yeah. or players that it's hard for them to make money. Okay. Um, but the content players, as I said, are struggling with... Yeah. The fact that they've had a really beautiful industry that yeah. is over-earned, but it's hard to see how it keeps yeah. doing that at the same level. Craig, never enough time. Thank you so much. Craig Moffat with Moffat Nathanson Worldwide. This is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Axel Merck, we get a ton of mail on. He is not so much an Austrian uh, manager looking at Austrian economics, that would be an unfair uh, categorization. But nevertheless, he's someone that really questions um, a lot of the modern economics wrapped around the U.S. dollar. He is with Merck Investments. And Axel, I want to congratulate you. You've got a long, short currency fund, the Merck Absolute Return Fund, which has had a spectacular 2016 challenging performance over the years. Why is why has that portfolio done so well over the last eight months? Well, uh, hi, it's great to be with you. 
when I talk to you, I always talk talk about diversification and whatnot. And and a long short strategy, and in our case, we do it with long short currencies, provides the opportunity to really provide uncorrelated returns, which on a day like yesterday, for example, might be quite valuable. And the specifically, um, many long short strategies have struggled when the markets were boring, mm-hmm. when volatility is low, when there's dispersion of risk. That sort of strategy does well. And if you believe that volatility is bound to rise at some point, um, right. and that's going to hurt risk assets in general, you want to be in something like that. And obviously, right. we, we love that strategy. Yes. Just as one oddball thing, and this is what's great about talking to Axel Mark David, is, is he's the king of oddball pieces. Huh? You have a Swedish <laughs> regional 2% coupon K-O-M-I-N-S piece that makes up a big chunk of that portfolio, like publish 15%. It matures tomorrow. Give us a leg up. What are you going to do with all that money? Oh, goodness. You are going to ask me about regulatory intricacies. I mean, the, the, the absolute return currency strategy is one where we go long, short currencies. And, and what happens in those sort of strategies is we are, by regulation, required to invest in underlying securities, such as a Swedish short-term security. And this happens to be a concentrated position. But ultimately, one uses forward currency contracts to be very tactical. Indeed, this, this fund right. is getting rebalanced on a daily basis. And, and so, yes, we hold a fixed income security in the long run we, we generate income from those things but that's really only because we have this underlying cash i mean one of the beauties about the the uh, the, the, the the currency space is that you can use forward contracts yeah. to be very agile and 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 so but at the end of the day because it's a mutual fund structure we got to do something with the cash and the regulators don't want us to hold t-bills yeah. so we do go out yeah. and buy those sort of securities is that okay david did i go yes. enough inside no. baseball there <laughs> I love it. John Way Tucker, I think like 12 people drove off the road. No, including me. I'm in a ditch right now. <laughs> Axel, let me, let me get you to react to what we saw out of London this morning. Uh, the UK Prime Minister here indicating a willingness to work with the Parliament. We saw uh, movement in Stirling on, on, on the heels of that. Take us, take us through uh, what you're thinking in light of what she had to say today. I am shocked that she's going to work with Parliament. I mean, it's a, we, we have a currency that's been pounded, and now the market was looking for an excuse to, to let it bounce back a little bit. Of course, she has to consult with Parliament. Um, but none of that changes, of course, what's ahead. It doesn't change that things are going to be difficult. And the ultimate reason why the sterling, in my view, is going to continue to weaken in the medium term, independent of what's going to, do, going to be doing today, is that the, the, the structural issues aren't being fixed. Um, they have a serious issue with their budget. They're going to be spending more money. Um, they're going to have an inflation issue because um, they're going to kick out the foreign workers. They, they're going to be having a weaker currency. They're going to have all kinds of challenges. And, and we just don't have a good plan of how we're going to embrace those sort of things. Uh, and, and, yes, they'll chat with, with Parliament, and maybe they're going to soften some things. I mean, the same thing always happens. You, you put up a tough stance, they're going to soften. Um, and and, and the, the U.K. is going to continue. But it doesn't mean everything is going to be great in the U.K. And I see them slipping down the slope like Italy used to have. Um, where they're going to have big deficits and going to finance them with a uh, with a weaker currency. Is the word parity crossing Axel Merck's lips? 
I, I, I was quoted on that, I think, during the Brexit talk that that might be an op- might be getting there. that said, of course, the moment I say it, the sterling <laughs> is probably going to reach the bottom for a few months. Um, and so, so to me, the risk of parity is certainly there. Um, am I betting on parity in the coming weeks or months? No. Um, and so to me, the sterling is structurally weak. If we're going to look for a place in the world where, where we're going to have a challenge that the central banks are not going to be able to keep control on the markets, the UK may well be a candidate because the markets are just much smaller. The UK continues to ride on its imperialistic vision that they are some grand nation and, and can manage all of this. And the markets are showing them that, no, you guys are a, a just yet another country, and you're going to be subject to market forces. And that's something that the UK will have to get used to over time. We've been focusing on sterling here, but let me ask you about the RAND. Of course, the news yesterday that the finance minister is going to be charged uh, with fraud. Uh, the, the background, the backdrop of political uh, instability there uh, gets larger. Yeah. Well, I mean, the difference between South Africa and the UK is everybody expects South Africa to be weak. Everybody has been looking at this from kind of from far away here anyway and saying, oh, oh it's, it's really sad how kind of the structurally um, South Africa is not getting its act together. And, and yes, year to date, the round is actually up, but only because it was so extremely weak at the end of last mm. year. It's just that South Africa has a lot of homework cut out for itself, and unfortunately, things are not always going in the right direction, and that's what you see right. reflected in, in the week around. Yeah. Axel, let me frame currencies as we come back to you in our next section. What's your call on euro right now? I've noticed all week, not only sterling worker, but euro 110.16. Where do you put the euro a year out? Oh, I, I love the euro. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that's an overstatement, but but the um, I happen to think that this 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 idea again that we're going to go through the stratosphere on interest rates and that's mm-hmm. why the dollar has to be so strong, just as in recent years, was completely overblown. I think we're actually closer to the top of the interest rate cycle in the U.S. and closer to the bottom in the eurozone. Right. And the reason I say that is because in the eurozone um, there is just no good way to continue to ease. Whereas in the U.S., uh, yes, we're going to hike rates, but nominal rates are are going up, whereas real rates, meaning net of inflation, right. um, raising rates at quarter well, point is, once a year is that, not going to get real rates up. One explainer. Within interest rates and within GDP, you've got the actual growth of the underlying rate, and then you've got the inflation overlay on top of that. David Gura, bring in Axel Merck as we talk about the idea of if we get a burgeoning inflation, do you get real growth with that or not? I gotta just let Axel respond to that as John Tucker pumps his fist with excitement at that second quick take that we yeah, got I know. right there. Yeah, I know. I don't think people <laughs> people get real and nominal. And Axel, you have to explain that. Axel, jump in. You know. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, we live in this world where we supposedly don't have any inflation. If you if you look at the the core um, core inflation indicator that the Fed looks at, I mean, it, anytime there's inflation popping up, it, it has substitution effects. So you're not going to see inflation in the kind of the things that the Fed looks at until it really stares you in the face. But if you look at the labor market, the inflation pressures are, are seeping through the system now. Um, ultimately, the Fed wants to have inflation. I think you, you had Feldstein on, the, the Harvard professor, who, who has said the Fed wants to be behind the curve. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, Bernanke used to phrase it that when you're faced with a credit bust, you want to be late in, in, in raising rates. The worst thing you can do is hike rates early. No, I don't agree with much of what the Fed does, but the Fed clearly um, in my view, wants to be behind the curve. Um, I, I just chatted with somebody who says, oh, I think inflation is going to go up about five basis points a quarter. I, I think inflation is going to go up more than that. And if you now hike interest rates by 
0.25% a year, you're going to be behind the curve. And so all this hoopla about tightening, we don't have tightening. We have tightening because of LIBOR rates going up. That's where we have tightening. But the Fed doesn't do tightening these days. Um, going up at 25 basis points in December, if we do it, um, is not going to make the, the world much tighter. But there will be days in the market where the dollar surges and the media is going to write, oh, my God, the Fed is going to hike rates. We've had that so many times over recent years. Ultimately, the Fed, in my view, cannot hike real interest rates um, because they have inflated asset prices so much and based the recovery on that. Um, I once chatted with a, a former Fed president who, who told me that the only time the Fed would be concerned about deflating asset prices is if they created a bubble. And then he pauses. And you can make your own interpretation whether they have created an asset bubble or not. Actually, you've written a lot about dollar dominance. I'm looking at the UN. It's been weak, uh, getting weaker here. We've seen the government, Chinese government, allowing that to happen seemingly. A few weeks back, the UN was welcomed into the IMF special drawing rights basket. There are people here who are uh, flagging the, the end of dollar dominance. That's something that you've written about uh, yourself. Um, give, us, give us your sense of, of where things are headed. I know you've been looking at a, a new rule, a money markets rule that's supposed to go into effect on, on Friday, and the effect that may be having. Yes. Well, the SDR changes, I think, are mostly symbolic. Um, very few nations, none, none that are relevant, really manage the reserves based on SDR. So that's really a, a symbolic move. Uh, much more relevant is what, what you're alluding to, these money market fund changes for institutional money market funds that are, are coming into effect at the end of the week. Now, that said, uh, money market funds have been getting ready for that. And basically, if you go back to 2011, for example, half the prime money market fund positions were in commercial papers issued by European banks. Um, so there was one firm that we found that had three quarters of its paper that. Um, and that's just an indication that m U.S. money market funds are a major source of funding for everybody, um, be that U.S. corporate, municip U.S. municipal, but also European banks, foreign sovereigns. And now what's happening is that U.S. money market funds are encouraged or discouraged from holding that sort of paper, g holding more government paper. Um, holdings in institutional money market funds have been, have been plunging. And that means that there's going to be less funding available. We see that yep. um, now in the, in the cost of funding going up for European banks. And what that means is right. the U.S. is a less attractive place to get funding. And over time, that's going to make the U.S. Uh, currency less of a reserve okay. currency because they've had this implicit guarantee that was assumed that money market funds are safe, and that's no longer the case. Your critics, with respect, say it's a great theory, but we're waiting when do we begin to see the exorbitant privilege slip away of the U.S. dollar? Well, it's a gradual process. It's, a, it's like a, a, a frog in a boiling pot. I mean, you see... Is US that frog sterling? Is, is that fraud trade-weighted sterling? The FT today working off Bank of England has sterling at 168-year low? Is that an example? No, what, what, no, the example is U.S. corporates issuing euro-denominated debt, for example. Um, the euro is becoming a real competitor with all the trouble in the eurozone, and I, I certainly don't dismiss those sort of issues that they have, but the euro has become a funding currency, and that's not just for traders. Um, it is a, a real funding currency. U.S. business is funding itself in the euro these days. There will be more euro-based funding, and that's the sort of competition it's going to get. The, the, the sterling, they have a bunch of issues, obviously. Um, 
Um, and if anything, the, the sterling has been on a long-term decline and it's going to continue. But um, there's going to be more local funding. The prime competitors of the dollar is going to be more local funding. We, we've had an attempt of that in the last decade. It didn't work as well as it could. I think the wake-up call has been there again. Clearly, it takes a little bit more than, than, than just, a, um, that, that just a decision to do local funding. But the U.S. is, is obviously going to be relevant. But the, the, there is a, a gradual path that funding is taking place more in local mm-hmm. currency. And the key reason for that is that there had been this implicit subsidy that U.S. money market funds were kind of this free piggy bank for, for everybody where they could get funding. That's no longer the case. So why would you do dollar funding if you don't have the implicit advantage anymore? It's not a God-given right. Yeah. It's something that has to be earned. And it was kind of um, subsidized with those money market fund rules that have been in place. Axel, thank you so much. Axel Merck, Merck Investments with us on uh, currency. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.